Welcome to the All About Setwork podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things setwork. That can include training tips, a behind-the-scenes look at what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Michael McManus about the variety of different things that our dogs may be processing when they're doing a search, and how we need to think things through a little bit differently when we're talking about setwork. Before we start diving into the episode itself, let me just do a very quick introduction of myself. My name is Diana Santos. I'm the owner and lead instructor for Setwork University, Dog Sport University, Canine Fitness University, and Family Dog University. These are online dog training platforms that are designed to provide high quality dog training instruction to as many people as possible. And we're very fortunate to have a client basis worldwide. For Setwork University in particular, we focus on all things Setwork. We do this with our online courses, seminars, and webinars, as well as a regularly updated blog and podcast like what you're listening to today. So that you know a little bit more about me, let's dive into the podcast episode itself. So now we're going to listen into a conversation that I had with Michael regarding the fact that dogs are likely taking in information in their searches more than just the target odors they may be hunting for. So one of the things that we have been talking about in our webinars and in your other podcasts is this idea of how dogs are taking in information from their environment. They're obviously processing a bunch of different things whenever they're searching. And one of the things that I have been puzzling over, particularly after going to one of the CNCA symposiums with NSCSW, is are the dogs truly 100 million percent just hunting for odor or are they simply following where their person may have gone when they were setting the search and then saying, yes, now there's odor here as well. And whether or not that matters. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about this to see what your opinions are on it. And again, not whether or not people can get any training advice from this is more just a discussion. So let me know what you think. Yeah. I think it would be a particularly stupid dog that wouldn't use all the tools they have at their disposal, um, including tracks, hand scent, airflow. Like it would be, it's like getting mad at a dog for using airflow and wind to find the odor. It's like, well, he should have just scoured the area until he pinpointed it and not used the wind to his advantage. It's like, no, of course, the dog's going to use every advantage he can. He's a predator, right? And you, you might even say that even if we could train a dog to have a pure response only to odor, that my intuition says that that wouldn't be desirable. Um, and the reason I say that is um, uh, I was talking to, again, Roger Brandis about this, about the uh, Apopo rats. And he was telling me that those rats, they're trained to detect landmines, that they were trained in the lab and the lab uh, environments were very pristine. And you may have experienced this in your own training, that if you train a very pristine way of doing nose work, that when the rats finally got deployed to work, they couldn't work in non-pristine environments where the odors were muddled with other scents and diluted and buried and obscured and all sorts of things. So they had to intentionally train dirty. So in other words, have some uh, scent that wasn't the source, that was just sitting there, that was residual, that the rats didn't get to alert on. They had to have um, hand scent on it and not on it and all of, all of those things. So I actually think this pure image of dog hunting odor uh, isn't realistic and isn't even desirable. So it's a good thing to know because there have been discussions as far as well, oh my God, now I need to set up my search and I need to yeah. bring in five other people to walk through my search. And then I need to go wash my hands and <laughs> I need to go do all this craziness. So if people are indeed practicing 
they're practicing on their own with their dog. They don't have anyone else to set hides for them. So it's just them and it's just their dog. Have you noticed at all as a trial official or as an instructor that that dog then goes on to struggle if they were then to go on to trial because the dog thinks that the combination or the desirable odor is mom or dad plus odor, not simply just person and odor potentially. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And it can, it can flip flop. So I think diversity of experience is the most important thing is the golden rule. But um, yeah, I have seen those dogs struggle a lot. And I think um, the the general example I'll use in my classes is we've got, uh, let's say we have eight dogs in our class and uh, dog one always runs first and dog number eight always runs last every single class and we do this for however long three months let's say and they go to their first ort and just luck of the draw dog one ends up at the end of the running order and dog eight ends up at the beginning so what happens to the two dogs so dog eight who was used to there being tons of tracks in the environment uh, using those tracks but also some of those tracks not necessarily leading anywhere because the tracks were different um, because maybe this dog was distracted and went off in another direction or something. So that dog is used to a lot of dog tracks. He comes into a room with no tracks on the ground. He's actually going to find that uh, slightly disturbing and distracting. So yeah, the lack of something can be just as much of a distraction as the presence of something. Um, so then dog one has the reverse experience. He now has tons of tracks on the ground, doesn't know what to do with all this information. Now, we would hope because dog one had this pristine environment from day one that there were never any other tracks on the ground except for maybe the trainer's tracks um, that he always knew just go to the odor and alert and you get your treat let's hope that carries him over but probably more likely than not the dog will be distracted by all the other tracks in the room not know what to do with it and time out okay so once again as usual i'm sure there are some people who are going to be listening to this be like oh god now i'm one of those people who just works by myself i don't have anyone to help me so what do I do? What, what do I do in order to ensure that I'm not imprinting onto my dog that this is exactly what this means? Because I am interested in competition. I am interested in earning titles and I don't want to be wasting my money. <laughs> so what can I do if I'm in that situation? If you're really interested in competing and earning titles, you have to train with other people, period. Because you're never going to CO the trial you're competing in. You're not going to be the one putting the odor out for yourself. So even if that means just going to a park and finding random people, I know this is hard for people finding random people to go set the odor. Just say, look, here, there's four park benches. Take this odor and go put it on one of them, right? Uh, just do simple searches like that. Um, kids are the best. They love setting hides for dogs. And um, Or e- even if that's really hard for you, I get that. Um, go and uh, set a hide in a busy area where lots of people are walking in and out. Now, that may uh, heighten your dog's sensitivity to following your track amongst other tracks. So that may be a problem and you can zigzag through the search area to try to throw your dog off and that's that's fine there's nothing wrong with that you can play with that but ultimately i think uh, having other people set odor for you and your dog is actually crucial and going online and finding people in your area that might be willing to swap hide placements i i think that's invaluable you can't you can't unless you just want to learn through the failure of going to trials and and letting the dog learn through the trial experience which i'm not a huge fan of Okay. So just to dive into this a little bit more. So do people also, in addition to having, hopefully other people setting hides, do they also need to have other people prepare the hides? Because this is another discussion point that people have had that I may prepare my odor one way, 
even if I'm following the same type of preparation, but maybe I ordered it from ABC vendor, but they ordered it from one, two, three vendor. So how far down this rabbit hole do you go personally, either with your clients or just even from a discussion point, how far do people really need to go in order to ensure the dog understands the trueness of the game and they haven't latched on to this tiny little detail that we may not even be thinking about? Yeah. And I think it depends on, um, one, your competitiveness level. So I'm assuming that you're quite competitive. So if you're not competitive at all, then the answer is it doesn't matter. But if you're competitive, then you do want to give your dog the best, um, the best chance of success. And then the second thing is what venue you compete in. Uh, so the different venues have different amounts of variation in the amount of odor set in the trial. So let me give you uh, some examples. NACSW odor, without getting into too much detail, um, the CO doesn't make their own odor. The, the odor is made all in one central location then shipped to each trial the week before that trial. And it is freshly made, so it's, it's extraordinarily consistent. Um, now, again, in the different environments, the different elevations, different humidities, of course, that odor is going to act differently. Uh, but the odor for those competitions tends to be a very high level of consistency. Now, AKC, the judges prepare their own odor. So that means you've got tons and tons of different people preparing odor. They have very clear guidelines about how to make that odor. Each Q-tip has two drops uh, on it, and you use one as a high. Now, how big of a drop, how big of a dropper? Uh, some of that stuff isn't fully regulated. So there's still a lot of consistency, but uh, maybe less than NACSW. And that's not a bad or a good thing. It just means that if you train AKC trials, you might want to get out there on other people's odor more regularly uh, so that your dog is seeing a little bit more variation. And other uh, venues have even more variation than that. So just knowing how your venue prepares odor, what you plan on competing in, and just exactly how much variety you need to expose your dog to is very important. Perfect. So the other shoot off from this is people, particularly those who are first getting into this are like, great. I bought an odor kit. I'm practicing. I'm having my children run around and place hides. And sometimes they place them in places. My dog can't find them. And then I get really upset, but it's okay. <laughs> but now I have this odor kit. My dog is working. Everything is great. But now I don't know how long I should be using this odor. I don't know. Do I need to run out and buy more odor? So basically to stay within the, the, four walls of this discussion. Should people be using different ages of their odor because odor will degenerate over time in order to ensure that their dog understands, well, I'm finding a hide that is, you know, the oil is, you know, two months old, this oil is two years old. Do they need to go to that length? Does that help them? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think uh, the age of odor um, doesn't matter in terms of the dog's ability to find it. Um, my dogs have found the oldest odor they've ever found was five years old. However, the odor that's typically used at competition is usually very fresh, like within uh, two days to a week old. So if you're planning on competing and doing that regularly, I would expose them to fresh odor fairly regularly. And at least before you go compete, re-expose them to fresh odor. One thing I might want to add to all this is that I've actually, with some of my more advanced nosework students, um, I've actually done, uh, changed out a nosework class and done a, a tracking class instead. And I think that exposing your dog to different ways of working their nose, um, even though it's not for odor, it was just human tracking. And we brought, you know, people out to teach us and, 
uh, I think it just makes you a better handler and makes your dog a better dog. Uh, I really don't think doing like a lot of people think, oh, don't do tracking and nose work because they'll be confused. I don't believe that. I, I think that you can do tracking and, and nose work. You can do uh, a scent, uh, human scent articles for obedience and nose work. No problem. I actually think the different disciplines will improve your dog overall. Perfect. I think that's a great thing for us to end on that people can, they don't have to think quite so much in a box that they can broaden their horizons a little bit and then understand the way that their dog is just taking in all the information from the entirety of the environment and training pristine may not actually be in your best interest that understanding all the different things that they're taking in as they're processing the problem is important and to expose them to as many of those variables as possible. So I want to thank you very much for joining us. I hope that you stay safe <laughs> and we look forward to another conversation. So we want to thank Michael again for joining us for this very interesting conversation. And it's important for all of us to keep these different elements in mind that our dogs are very smart little creatures and they all try to take in as much information as possible. But we'd also have to think about that when we are doing our training, particularly if we're interested in doing trialing. So I hope you found this podcast episode helpful. Happy training and we look forward to seeing you soon.